Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 36, recorded July 26, 2017. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. And we got some great stuff lined up for you. Very cool news in the Python space. Before we get to it, just want to say Rollbar is sponsoring this episode. They've got a really great offer for you at pythonbytes.fm slash rollbar. Tell you more about that later. Right now, Brian, I would like you to tell me some poetry. Read me something beautiful. So it's poetry hour at uh, Python Bytes. No. <laughs> I started at a community college and then I switched to um, a University of Oregon to start the computer science program. And one of the first classes I was in, before we got into like actually the technical stuff, my professor said, you need to think about your code like poetry. It should be pretty to look at. And it's kind of stuck with me. <laughs> I like that lesson. And this article, there's an article by Trey Hunter and it's called Craft Your Python Like Poetry. Just some decent advice. Your your code shouldn't really look like um, prose from a novel. It should look more like poetry and be, and it's not just pretty for pretty's sake. It's more readable when when it's visually appealing. I think, and he brings up uh, line length uh, is important. Although shorter is more readable, but um, man, he recommends fifty five character line lengths, and that's. That's pretty short. I think there's a real tension in this one. Although I, I do agree that line length matters and I prefer to have shorter is better in, in some ways. However, one of the real tensions I find here is another good practice is to have descriptive variable names. And sometimes that means longer than X, Y, and Z for your variable names. And if you start doing expressions involving those like this times that past this, that can get them huge really quickly just by virtue of putting long function names alongside long variable names. Yeah, they, yeah there is some tension there. And also um, in like working with data and tables and stuff, I do find tables that look like tables instead of looking like uh, crammed all the way to the left-hand side are, are, are more visually readable. Anyway... Getting over the line length thing, uh, he does have a lot of good comments about like when you, when you do have to continue a line to make it shorter, like do a line break, uh, where you do it is makes a big difference. And he ha he has some examples to make making a uh, line break uh, or broken comprehensions and more readable and function call parameters. And then one of the things I, don't, I think maybe this is a functional programming thing, but uh, chained function calls I probably just don't do that very much. But the dot alignment he um, noted looks pretty nice. The last one that I saw, which I kind of do anyway, I didn't realize that some people don't do this, is is uh, dictionary literals. So if you set up a dictionary that's kind of like an enum list, it's a basically just a predefined dictionary literal. Having one element per line makes it a lot more readable. But then there's you know there's always trade-offs. There's a if you've got a really large one. There's vertical, vertical length is important as well. And having a super long program might not be as easy to read as a shorter one. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Let me throw in one more that I don't think it's covered here. Maybe I just missed it is function, function length, right? Just the idea of breaking your program into little tiny bits, uh, little small, reasonable, easily understandable pieces, you know, kind of like a haiku, I guess, rather than a long flowing poem right and also i guess on that it doesn't he doesn't talk about white space too much but there's a white space even within within a fu function breaking up the different parts of when you're 
working with setting up the data versus uh, other things to break it up by white space, similar to how long poems break their uh, break are broken into little stanzas or something. Yeah, you know, thinking about this, one of the things that strikes me is the way that your code looks and breaking it down like this and kind of thinking about it this way. It's a big sign of sort of professional developer versus somebody just learning, somebody just poking around who's not really a developer. Like professional developer's code looks like these types of things. It's clearly structured beyond just what the language requires. And a lot of times people are new, they just kind of mush it all together. So that if you're if you're looking to come across better with your code, I guess, think about that as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I want to bring uh, something, bring everyone's attention to this thing called Fedora Python Classroom Lab. <laughs> okay. So the idea is Fedora, it's a Linux distribution, really nice one. And what they've built is basically Python and data science, Python-based data science in a box. So, or rather in an ISO. What you can do is you can get just the ISO DVD image of this Fedora Python classroom. You can mount it and literally just boot straight to this thing. It fires up Fedora and you can log in without even installing it. Log in, you have access to NumPy, SciPy, IPython, Matplotlib, requests, all the various uh, most common packages, and it's just up and ready to go. So that's that's really sweet. You have a, the GUI GNOME-based version, or you have a Docker or Vagrant no, no UI variant. So all sorts of stuff is just set up and ready to go. So if you're going to teach Python and you're thinking of maybe using Linux to do it anyway, Here's a really nice thing you can hand out to the students and just say, boot from this CD or this DVD or this image or create a virtual machine based off of it and you're ready to roll. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I originally thought this was a thing I downloaded inside Fedora and <laughs> logged into Fedora. I'm like, wait, where's all this stuff? Oh, it's actually its own copy of Fedora. So this is its own like Linux plus pre-configured Python stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's a... Pretty cool, right? Yeah, everything. Yeah. Including talks in there. Nice. Yeah, it's all ready to roll. Multiple versions of Python, everything. So you have uh, some less than amazing news <laughs> for what's up next. So we previously talked about this really cool concept uh, called Kite, which it would take your code and it would take a lot of stuff you would do as a developer on your system and it would add smarts, right? It would add auto-completion even where there wasn't and, and these types of things. But there, it turns out there was a few drawbacks just conceptually around it, but... There's also a bit of um, a toss-up about actually their behavior. What's up with this? Yeah, so I, I was, uh, because, especially because we had covered it, my, my reluctance to this product to start with was that they would, it's all cloud-based stuff, so they would uh, send your code, in order to give you hints and stuff, it would send your code to their their company, and then... Uh, and you just kind of have to trust that they're not going to do anything evil with it. Yeah, I was a re little reluctant at that as well. Like if when I was playing with it, I put it on a section. You can say this subset of your hard drive it can like interact with. And I gave it a section where I didn't have like things that had, you know, API keys and stuff. It was just like me playing around. But still, it is a bit of a hesitation. But that's not really what we're talking about, is it? No, what we're talking about, there's a article that came out on, uh, I'd never seen this site before, theoutline.com which is an article called How a VC-Funded Company is Undermining the Open Source Community. And it's it's about some underhanded, or at least some accusations of underhanded tactics by Kite. 
So here's the story is it's about two add-ons to Adam, the uh, text editor Adam. And uh, one of them is uh, Minimap, which is I'm supposedly downloaded over three and a half million times. So it's well used and it's developed by one person. And I'm guessing Minimap is similar to the like the map feature in Sublime or something. But the one developer, Abe33, was hired by Kite. And then after being hired by Kite, inserted a or um, updated the plugin with um, with a kite promotion feature. That was actually the the git log, the git commit log was added kite promotion feature or something like this, right? Yeah, and the feature was to insert web links or links back to articles on the kite website related to the content of a user's um, code. So read the code, figure out which article would be relevant and put links. I'm guessing the links go in the mini map and not actually inserted in your code, hopefully. But the users uh, were rightfully kind of ticked about this and said, this isn't a feature. This is just blatant advertising. Well, I think there's two levels here. On one hand, the person who added that feature was the creator of the product, right? So that's not great. If, if some other random person had come along and inserted this promo stuff into someone else's open source project, that would have been flat out terrible. This is, let's say, a little shady, I would say, in, in the spectrum in my mind. This is like, it's not, there, there's no point, well, there's very small points where this is actually going to benefit the users other than the one user who is Kite. Yeah, now if it was possibly suggesting like lots of different articles from different like different websites, it still would be weird. It's a it's a completely unrelated thing feature of it. I don't know. Yeah. The uh, the next one is a it's I had to look it up, but I th- it's another Atom add-on, which is a autocomplete Python. So that definitely relates to Python. But it uh, it didn't insert advertising. But what it did do was it had the autocomplete was done using a local engine on the user's computer called Jedi. And it got switched at one point to default to the Kite engine, which is a cloud-based engine. So it would send all your code to Kite. Kind of, if somebody updated that plugin, wouldn't they would? I don't think they would know that that was going on. Yeah, how would you even know, right? I mean, look, the autocomplete's still working. Oh, wait, it's because my code's no longer on my machine. How strange. And apparently this wasn't done by... I'm not sure who put that feature in, but... The article suggests that instead of a, a purchase of the or a, a hire by Kite, it was just a bunch of Kite people were working on the plugin also and added this. Again, users aren't a lot of users weren't exactly supportive of that change, and it is a bit weird. And the, basically, that's I think the the point of this article is to point out that we've got a lot of a lot of open source projects that are used by a lot of people, like a whole lot of people. And it only takes maybe one person, core person, to uh, be corrupted uh, or in- influenced to um, basically make the package benefit a single company instead of the rest of the world, which, yeah, it's problematic and interesting. So Yeah, it definitely uh, raises some interesting moral issues uh, around open source. And what does it mean to make these types of changes when there's 3 million people already using your product especially if those changes are invisible, if that means like privacy changes, like your code is now going and being analyzed outside of your 
control rather than when you thought it wasn't, things like that. Yeah, like that autocomplete thing, I, what I guess I would have expected as an open source user is I don't care really if a company has a has an open source projects that that they're maintaining that benefit their company. We're kind of used to that and, and that's not terrible, but it's very out in the open. So I would kind of would have expected them to like fork that project and have a different autocomplete project that would go to the kite instead of using Jedi. That would have made more sense to me. Right. Then you opt in. Yeah. If you opt into it, you get better autocomplete. You might make that trade off. Right. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> All right. Well, there it is. Everyone else, everyone can read it for themselves. It's a pretty interesting article there. So something I am much more comfortable with using in my projects is Rollbar. So you guys probably heard us talk about Rollbar before. It's super easy to integrate into your system. You just pip install Rollbar and plug in your account key and you're basically ready to go. The idea is it will look at your code, especially your web apps while it's running. And if there are any errors, it will capture all the details about the errors, send it up to the cloud, send you notifications like to Slack, or you can get like emails, things like that. And usually don't even have to debug your code. You can just log in, see all the variables passed, the whole call, you know, call stack, things like that, and just go and fix it. So half the time, it's really important to be notified right away when an error is happening rather than letting it go on for hours. And finally, somebody will vaguely send you a message like, this button doesn't work anymore. What do you mean it doesn't work? So pip install rollbar and you'll be ready to roll. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash rollbar and it's uh, use it on pythonbytes.fm and the other sites it's great so thanks rollbar thank you rollbar you know the news has been uh journalism in general has been more interesting in the last six months i would say than it <laughs> traditionally has <laughs> yes and the next the thing that i i want to talk about is like let's say maybe a specialized screen scraping type of library called newspaper so this is a python package pip install newspaper type of thing and the idea is you can point this at a URL for, say, like CNN or MSNBC or New York Times or something like that, and it will give you very detailed information that you might care about for news articles. Have you heard about this, Brian? I haven't. Yeah, this is really slick. So you create, I'll just give you like a little sense of the code because there's just a few steps. You're like, wow, that's sweet. So you create this article object and you pass it the URL to like a, some news item. You can download it, and it'll just give you the content. You can parse it, and then you can ask it things like, who were the authors? And it will just give you a list that are just the names of the authors it already discovered. You can ask it when it was published. You can do NLP, natural language processing, on it. Just That's a function, call that. And then you can ask, what are the keywords? Give me the summary of this article. What is the cover image of this article? All sorts of stuff like that. This is really cool if you work with like a news type data. Yeah, this is great. Isn't that cool? I mean, if, if you... Yeah, especially if you... Yeah, I guess you tie it to other ways, you're going to get different news articles to be able to parse some of this as a kind of little service. It'd be cool. Yeah, and I don't remember where you pointed to to get started, but you can also say, what are, are the, all of the articles on this news site and then go ask these questions about each article and, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's pretty slick. I like it. Yeah. It's a little bit of that import anti-gravity type thing. That's right. Definitely. Just, <laughs> I typed a few lines and it's, it's rolling. Speaking of that, that might be, but before we move on the, um, the, the code example you talked about, you, you put it up on our show notes and it really is just like 17 lines of code. It's, 
pretty short. So yeah, and, and like half of that is like showing you what's printed out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe not half, but some of that. So this sort of really this this ability to grab these packages and do amazing stuff in a few lines of code. Maybe that's why Python's popular. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And um, we've gotten there's an article from IEEE Spectrum called "The Top Programming Languages of 2017," and big surprise, we're number one. Yay! We're number one. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, it's it's really cool, and it's number one in a lot of interesting ways. There's actually five measures, four of which mean anything to me. One one measure is the IEEE Spectrum rate uh, ranking. One is trending, one is jobs, and one is open. And so it's kind of, um, you can go over this like an interactive thing. The IEEE spectrum rating is all around. Trending is languages that are growing rapidly. Jobs are languages that are in demand by employers. And open is popular on open source hubs. Yeah. You can also dig into it by embedded devices and things like that. And it even, this is an interactive thing. You can even like customize your ranking if to for what's important for you, which is kind of fun right like i care about enterprise development and jobs or something like this and you can like narrow that down it's definitely interactive so let me give you the let me give you the numbers brian so for trending number one is python close behind is c and c plus plus and then java so and swift is there as well and then for jobs actually python is number three but just like by 0.7 percent so it goes java c and then python and then for openness python is way back on top and then custom, yeah, whatever that means. You gotta let's make your own. Yeah, yeah. And I, my comment, I think that the reason why there's more Java jobs is because there's a whole bunch of Java programmers shifting to Python. <laughs> right, like there used to be a lot of Cobalt jobs, <laughs> <laughs> but not Cobalt's growing. It's because people got to keep that stuff going. It's Co- Cobalt's still on the list. Wow, it's twenty fourth in jobs. Yeah, man, that puppy's hanging in there. Huh. <laughs> Poor people. Yeah, but assembly is like eleventh. Wow. Okay. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, so there's all these different all these different measures and rankings and they all take different things into account. So you got to take that with a bit of a grain of salt, but the one trend that seems to appear across all of these is Python is very high on the list and is growing more popular or higher up on the list. So that's a great thing for betting your career, your next bit of career and your energy on focusing on Python, I think. Yep. And also, um, I, IEEE is respected by a lot of people, but they also right here open, openly show you what, what they used for their methodology of how they rank things. And and it's a it's not nothing surprising, combination of Stack Overflow and trends and Twitter and and including articles in their IEEE Explore digital library. So that's uh, oh, nice. not surprising, but it's cool that they just show you what, what all those are. Right. So when they say it's popular in jobs, that means because they're crawling Stack Overflow jobs, probably Career Builder, Dice, those types. Yeah, I didn't know Dice was still around. But no offense to all the Dice <laughs> hey, man, people my, out there. <laughs> MySpace is still around. MySpace. Uh, AOL is still around. Okay. So last thing I want to share with you guys is recently the SciPy 2017 conference happened in Seattle here in the U.S. And like many of these conferences, the videos and tutorials were recorded, put on YouTube, and you can go check them out. So there's a ton of tutorials if you want to get into data science. The keynote was uh, something I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but it sounds really interesting. Coding for science and innovation. Like who wouldn't want to do that? That sounds awesome. Yeah, then we've got Dash, which we've talked about, you've talked about before, a new framework for building uh, user interface and technical computing stuff. And then 
Uh, similar spelling, totally different thing is Dask for like parallelized processing data pipelines. We've got scientific analysis at scale, a comparison of five systems with Jake Vanderplas, and um, academic open source, which I think is, is pretty cool for groups, uh, people in that area. So tons and tons of videos. These are just a few I grabbed to give you guys a flavor of what's out there. Yeah, that was in Seattle. Man, I wish I would have gone. Yeah, I know. I was planning on going, but I, I couldn't quite make it. Yeah, I'm glad a the too hectic at the time. I'm glad the videos are out there. I'll have to check some of those out. Yep. And I think I just got a notice that PyCon Canada call for proposals opened today or yesterday. So speaking of conferences, if you want to speak at the other major, major Python conference in North America, it's time to submit the proposals. Do you know which candidate it is? The left Canada or the right Canada? Uh I think it's the right Canada. Okay. Uh it's in Montreal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for our news, Brian. Anything else you want to share with everyone? I am closingly done, almost done with the book. I wanted to try to get it done last night at midnight, but I've got a few hours left. But I, I'm super excited to get the Python testing book out to everybody. Yeah, so. and that's been a that's been a big success. People are responding well to it. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. How about you? Nothing too new. Just cranking along. Yeah bunch of stuff's going on enjoying summer enjoying uh, working on python stuff but nothing specific speaking of summer you've got a vacation coming up i do i have a like semi work travel vacation more vacationish stuff so i'm going to be out for four weeks probably not next week but the week after so we're going to see what we can do about lining up some guest co-hosts keep the show rolling no concrete details there but uh will at the very there may be yeah, at the very least, we'll have one more episode, and there may be a gap, but we're going to try to not have a gap. We're going to try not to have a gap. That's right. We'll, we'll see what we can do about recording either on the road or, or um, wrangling some people into uh, being a co-host. So we'll, we'll see. We'll keep it rolling as best we can. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Brian. Thank thanks, everyone, for listening. Yep. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.